voices are exotic dancers enter one by one Make love to all of your orifices and your seduction Hello and welcome to Ear Seduction. I'm your host, Paul Schilling. In this episode, we're going to discuss our bodily autonomy rights again. If you recall, from our last episode, we detailed out the definition of life, which helps us to identify evidence for our right to bodily autonomy, specifically by identifying that which we must do. From there, we compiled a list of biological needs, which are the basis for our human rights. They are air, water, food, shelter, sleep, and homeostasis. As you no doubt recall, we left out one very important need, sex. That is because sex, while a need and therefore a right, requires consent. This is the only right that humanity has that also requires consent from other humans. So, it should be no surprise to you that sex is a human necessity and thus should be considered a human right. It should also not surprise you that in order to include this right in our list and in our science of morality, we're going to need to introduce some nuance, specifically the notion of consent. Because while sex may be a right all humans share, we cannot force each other to have sex not without acting immorally. And it gets worse. Not only do we need consent from each other for us to claim our rights to sex, but the facts of our biology forces us into yet another moral conundrum, one that ultimately we cannot reconcile fully. I'll elaborate on that in just a moment. First, let's discuss sex as a human right, the limitations of that right, and the nature of consent. First and foremost, let's all agree that humans have a right to have sex. Consenting adults may have sex with whomever they choose, and in any manner they desire. That is, that consenting adults are completely within their rights to have sex with each other, no matter what anyone or anything else believes about their sexual acts. Furthermore, any consenting adults have the right to procreate. The right to conceive and bear children is demonstrably evidenced in our definitions of life and in our evidence that supports bodily autonomy. Sex is, after all, necessary for human progress and a basic human need. The fruits of our passions, children, are widely understood to add great meaning to our lives and have been the basic and most foundational aspect of humanity's social systems throughout history. The family group is likely the most primitive of groups and the starting point for all of the social systems that we have built throughout the eons. The evidence is very clear on this point, and humanity's rights to have sex and to procreate have been cornerstones in our efforts to flourish, as have all of our other human needs. Just like we cannot talk about human flourishing without first addressing air, water, and shelter, we cannot even begin to discuss flourishing, meaning, or pleasure without including our need for sex. Sex was probably our first leisure, and remains, to this day, a potent source of fun, pleasure, stress relief, and pastime. 
When we were bored, we had sex. When we were stressed, we had sex. When we were tired but could not sleep, we had sex. And when we fought, we made up by having sex. While individuals can live without sex, humanity as a whole cannot. And who would want to? The sex that we have with each other is a basic human need, but it is also necessarily consensual. That is, that consent is necessary for sex to be free of suffering. People must engage in sex willingly for them to avoid physical and mental trauma that will result if they are forced to have sex. All the evidence that we have suggests that this is the case, and it's this fact and a few others, that makes humanity's right to bodily autonomy trump other rights. Over the course of the last few episodes, I've been reasoning with you that bodily autonomy is our most basal of rights. But why? Why not our right to life? Why not another right? That is because the evidence suggests that our right to bodily autonomy is foundational in all of our other rights. Our right to life, speech, and any others that you might conceive of are predicated on our right to bodily autonomy. Let's review the facts that demonstrate this to be true. The first fact is that we do not choose to be born. Our lives were not our doing, and we didn't get to choose who we were born to or whom we'd become. So life, while considered a right, was not our choice. But we do have a choice to keep living or to die. That choice is an exercise in bodily autonomy. Because my body is mine, and I have governance over it, I may decide to continue to live or to die. Another fact is that when someone takes our life, they must first violate our right to bodily autonomy. We may consent to that violation or not, but the violation must occur nonetheless. So it can be said that when we murder, we are violating someone's bodily autonomy so severely that they died. Once dead, then we have violated their right to life. But this violation is conditional in nature. The right to bodily autonomy is always the first right to be violated. And then, depending on how severely the right to bodily autonomy is violated, it may or may not result in the violation of a person's right to life. It is in this way that the right to life is predicated on our right to bodily autonomy. Yet another fact is that in order for humans to create life, both people must consent to allowing their bodies to be used, first by each other and later by the child. The man must allow for his body to be used for a short while during sex. The woman must allow her body to be used thereafter until the child is weaned. Furthermore, both parties are required to consent to providing for the child, and these provisions may be necessary for the life of the child and thus for the life of the parents. Hopefully, an understanding is starting to form in your mind. The entire process of procreation requires consent from everyone involved for the entirety of its duration. At any time during this process, from sexual intercourse until the death of the child, hopefully as an adult, the consenting parents may withdraw their consent and cease to be responsible for the life of the child. Again, this could happen at any time and for any reason, and the parents are under no obligation to maintain the life of their offspring. 
there is some nuance there that we can cover in a future episode, but within certain parameters, this is completely accurate. Adult children are often cut off, and young children are put up for adoption. Couples often decide not to conceive children at all, and the unborn are sometimes put to death. No matter where one finds themselves in this process, consent is required to continue in the process. It's that last part that is so controversial, and rightfully so. By no fault of our own, due to the facts of our biology and physiology, the unborn are gestated within the woman's body. Again, this isn't anyone's fault. This is just the way it is, at least for now. I say for now because if there is one way that we've discovered to outsmart the facts of nature, it's been through the scientific method. No longer are we required to pull and pray. Thanks to the scientific method, we can take a pill, use a condom, or install an IUD. So if there is a way to resolve this moral conundrum, that is the clear conflict between a pregnant woman's right to bodily autonomy and the unborn's right to bodily autonomy, the scientific method is our only hope. Returning to my point though, through no fault of ours, for a woman to claim her right to bodily autonomy, of which she has every right to do, sometimes the unborn have to die. To put it another way, the unborn are murdered. This stings especially severely when we consider the facts from previous episodes, like the fact that we've already determined that murdering those that murder is immoral. All the subjective moral facts and objective moral facts make that clear. So if we cannot murder murderers, then how is it possible that we can and should murder the innocent unborn? It's such a terrible position to be placed. Here we are, at the peak of humanity's understanding of science, evidence, and morality, and still we are forced to murder our most precious and innocent members of our species. One is tempted to throw their hands upward and scream, why? But that would be childish. And of course, we have the answers. The science and evidence will lead the way, as it always does. It is a scientific fact that humans have a right to bodily autonomy. All the evidence we have demonstrates this fact. It is also a scientific fact that for a pregnant woman to claim that right, sometimes an unborn child has to be murdered. These are just the facts. It's a tragic yet irrefutable and inescapable outcome. An outcome that evidence and science can help us to understand and come to terms with. So let's review some of that science. We know for a fact that before some point in the, in the gestation period of a human being, they do not feel pain or suffer. Thus, if we catch an unwanted pregnancy before this point, we are not causing any suffering. Since we have already identified that causing suffering is immoral, especially when we know that we are causing it, it is a human imperative that we do everything that we can to end the life of the unborn before this point. That should be obvious to everyone. Now let's consider what our responsibilities are after this point. As part of our science of morality, we must come to terms with some important moral facts. It is a fact that we cannot relieve ourselves of the morality of abortion. 
Every piece of evidence that we have suggests that killing the unborn is murder, and that murder causes suffering. So how are we to think of a woman's rights to bodily autonomy in light of these moral facts? An example will likely shed light on this impasse. Before I continue with this example, I want to reiterate something that I said in a previous episode. Moral examples like the one I'm about to explain are often misleading. Anyone can conjure up any example to try and tease out your moral intuitions. This is largely done as a manipulation, and my example is no exception. But I think you'll see shortly that this manipulation is required due to the facts of this moral conundrum. The fact of the matter is that this moral issue is a woman's issue. This is because it's the woman that must consent to the pregnancy at any stage. It's the woman who is placed in this conundrum, and it is the woman that must bear the brunt of the trauma of her decision. That being said, let me now attempt to manipulate the men and any women that might be persuaded by this example. Please understand that I engage in this manipulation not out of malice, but in an attempt to provide you with moral understanding. Because the people that fail to recognize the facts relating to abortion are largely guilty of either discounting a woman's right to bodily autonomy or inflating the unborn's right to life. Hopefully, this example will provide those folks with the correct starting position. Suppose for a second that I want to keep my finger in your butt. We needn't say anything more regarding this, but if you require more severity in this example, let's say that I must do this in order to sustain my life. In other words, unless you let me keep my finger in your butt, I will die. With that scenario in mind, the answers to the following questions should be forthcoming. Question number one. Should it be required that I obtain your consent in order to keep my finger in your butt? Question number two. If you agree that I may keep my finger in your butt, can you change your mind regarding this consent at any time? Hopefully, you don't need to think about this for very long. I'm confident that the subjective data sets that we would fill with this type of data would demonstrate that consent is indeed required. First for me to place my finger in your butt, and then in order to keep my finger in your butt indefinitely. The obvious conclusion is that if consent is required for my finger, then it is definitely required for the unborn. No matter which way you try and approach these questions, the conclusion should be clear. You could start with personhood, or the right to life, or the right to bodily autonomy. And no matter where you go from there, the evidence demonstrates very plainly that in order for me to keep my finger in your butt, you must consent to this arrangement. If you'd like to contribute to this, this subjective moral data set, please leave your answers to these two questions in the comment section. Moving on. Now, at this moment, I'm sure some of you are thinking, but that's not the same thing, and you'd be correct. The example I gave you isn't the same thing as what a woman must consent to in order to complete a pregnancy. For a pregnant woman, the stakes are far higher. The logistics of fingers 
being placed inside of butts doesn't even come close to what a woman must consent to when deciding to have a child. Also, putting my finger in your butt in order to continue living doesn't make any sense. As I stated before, it's clearly a contrived example to manipulate you into some place of understanding and compassion for what a woman must endure to bring a new life into the world. But again, let's consider the facts. We know for a fact that we have the right to bodily autonomy. All the evidence that we have from the sciences and our subjective human data sets demonstrates this fact. We also know that as part of that right, we must offer consent for others to use our bodies. And that includes the unborn. Furthermore, due to no fault of our own, women are put into the position of being required to consent for their bodies to be used as part of our human progress and advancement. Again, and I can't stress this enough, this is not our fault. This is just the way it is. These are the facts of our biology, physiology, and evolution. Reproduction is part of the definition of life, a definition that we look to in order to establish our basic human needs. And it's those needs that provide us with the foundation of our right to bodily autonomy. There is no scenario under which we lose our right to bodily autonomy because there is no scenario under which the taking of that right by another fails to cause human suffering. These are just the objective and subjective moral facts. So ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I need your body to sustain my life or if the unborn requires basically the same thing. The only question that needs answering is, do you consent to me or anyone else using your body to sustain their life? If the answer is no, then whatever outcome that follows is not your fault. And this is especially true for the unborn. And that's it. That's the punchline. It's not your fault that someone else's life requires your consent especially when the whole process evolved over hundreds of millions of years and was completely out of your control. One last thought before we close out this episode. If you are uncomfortable with these facts, then I empathize with you. I am too. After reviewing the facts, I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that for humanity to claim its right to bodily autonomy, in this one very specific instance, an innocent unborn person has to die. And that outcome, that murder, is completely out of anyone's control and ultimately no one's fault. It is just a fact of biology and human physiology. The good news is that we have invented the scientific method to manufacture hope. Hope that one day we will figure out a way for the unborn to continue to live happy and healthy lives long after the pregnancy was prematurely terminated. I have faith, faith that equates to hope and confidence, that science will provide an answer and relief from this moral discomfort, the way it has for all of our problems and the moral conundrums that we face. In the midst of all the facts I have shared with you over the course of this series, there is one that should stand out. The fact that science and the scientific method is our only hope for resolving the problems humanity faces. 
So if you want to solve the moral conundrum of abortion, then your highest priority should be to fund scientific progress in this field. In the next episode, we're going to walk through the process of coming to sound moral conclusions. There, we will incorporate all that we have learned in this series and provide you with a step-by-step process for answering all your moral questions. Please join me. Thank you. And this has been Ear Seduction.